we're going to be in the book of Jude. Now, you have homework if you've not already done it, and that's to read the book of Jude. It's similar to Isaiah and Jeremiah. No, it's not. It's very short. In fact, they're not even a chapter. It just gives you a bunch of verse numbers. And so you might want to look at that. I hope to bring to you a unique perspective to this great little book. And I'm looking forward to the next amount of weeks. It will take us quite a few weeks, believe it or not, to get through this little book. But today I wanted to start everything off with some entries from the men's thesaurus. Have any of you heard of the men's thesaurus? Is it just me? Okay, the men's thesaurus was put together because, guess what, guys? We don't always say what we mean. (laughs) Truth be told, we don't always say what we mean. When a man says, this is from the men's thesaurus, when a man says, can I help with dinner, he means, why isn't it already ready and on the table? (laughs) When a man says, "Uh uh-huh, sure, honey, or yes, dear, he means absolutely nothing. It is a conditioned response. When a man says, well, it would just take too long to explain this, he means, I have no idea how it works. It just works. When a man says, oh, don't fuss, I just cut myself, it's it's no big deal. What he really means is this, I have actually severed a limb, but I will bleed to death before I admit that I'm hurt at all. And I'm not going to the doctor, okay? Yeah. Ladies, is this, are you relating with this at all yet? Easy, easy, okay. When a man says, oh, this one hurts, I can't find it, he, what are you laughing at? I haven't even given you the line. He means it didn't fall into my outstretched hands, so I'm completely clueless where it is. This happens in my household on a weekly basis. And let's finish with this one. When a man says, I'm not lost, I know exactly where we are, he means no one will ever see us alive again. (laughs) Words, comments. Have you noticed, not just here, but in general, words can be confusing. As our men's thesaurus points out, truth is often what we want it to be. Did you catch that? Truth is often what we want it to be or what we might say it could be. Today we begin this series. It's called Truth Matters. Verse by verse through this little postcard we call the book of Jude. And there's a handout. I hope you got it today. If not, you can get it on the way out at receptionist desk or the visitor guest kiosk right by the doors. But we have a little thing. Now, this isn't specifically about Jude, but it's about truth in general. This is just a few of my thoughts about truth and a few little pointers and helpful things as you are talking with people about truth. And of course, we're talking about spiritual truth, but just truth in general, we want to look at gravity, truth. It was there before Newton. Did you know that? It's truth. It's not to be discovered. It's truth. It's there. So there's a lot of things you can look at, some scriptures you can go over. There's some commands in the Bible, and we'll look at one today about truth. And so hopefully you'll pick one of those up and read it, put it, tuck it away, and Maybe it will help you as you discuss truth out in the marketplace and in the neighborhoods. So today, we're going to consider this, contending for truth. And I want to tell you right now, another word for contending is fighting, okay? And I will never forget my first fight outside of my brothers. I come from a fighting family, unfortunately. And later on, as I got older, we were a running family. I was running from fights. But anyway, I remember I was in about second or third grade when I had my first real fight with my best friend after school. Anybody ever relate to that? It was not that fun. After it was over, I was crying on the way home. And it wasn't because of being hurt. It was because it was a really dumb thing to do. Okay, But there's certain things that we should fight for and contend for. Have you heard of the name Joe Lewis? Some of you youngsters may not, but Joe Lewis was an amazing man. He was the heavyweight boxing champion of the world. In 1934, it happened. And then he defended, are you ready for this? He successfully defended his title 25 times over the next 15 years, unmatched. 
And the sports voice of those days, his name was Bill Stern, he asked Joe Lewis, he says, how have you been able to knock out opponents so quickly, fight after fight? And here's the answer. It's very instructive. I want you to hear what Joe Lewis said. He said this, first, I study my opponent until I know him better than he knows himself. Now think about that for a minute. And secondly, I make a plan of attack. Wow. So, church, I want you to think about this. As we contend for God's truth, let's learn from that statement we just heard. Are we studying this issue? Are we even studying what opponents are saying? We're not burying our head in the sand, but we are actually thinking about what opponents are saying. And are we studying that? And then secondly, do we have a plan to make a difference? That, that's all I'm asking. That's what God asked, that we, we would join in the fight. We would contend. We would have a plan. We let God be God, but we do our part as he gives us opportunities. You know, I'm big about stories. I'm big about us sharing with others, and sometimes it goes great, and sometimes it will be an ongoing, hopefully courteous fight as we go back and forth talking about truth. And so today we're going to look at the first four verses of Jude. Would you pray with me? God, speak to us. May these few verses change our lives. May we get into the game. May we get into the fight. It is always worth it when we think about your truth and we think about eternity. So speak to us today, Lord, in your name we pray. Amen. So let's read these first four verses. starts out this way. Jude. Hey, that's a good way to start, isn't it? Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write and exhort you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For certain men, maybe now you know why I use the men's thesaurus. It says men, right? For certain men who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into promiscuity and denying our only, capital letter, Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Wow. You say, well, that part of that's a salutation. Uh, there's a lot more in there than, than you might think. So verse 1, let's look at it. I, I've entitled this, The Slave, the Savior, and the Saints. You might have that in your notes there. The Slave, the Savior, and the Saints. You know what that tells me, just this first verse? Do you know what it tells me? We're not alone. We are in this together. This little book starts off letting the readers know, hey, we're in it together. We're not alone. So we start with the slave. You figured that one out already. It's written by Jude. The scripture tells us he's the brother of James. Okay, which Jude, which James? Okay. Uh, don't be confused by other words because in the Greek it's Judas and in the Hebrew it's Judah. Here we have Jude, okay? And there are two other Judases, aren't there? Two disciples by that name. One is famous or infamous, right? Judas Iscariot. The other one is obscure. But this guy right here, Jude, is neither. He is one of the four half-brothers of Jesus Christ. And he is the brother of James. Well, who's James? You remember he became the leader of the Jerusalem church. The writer of the book of James, right. So we see a little commentary on this. Matthew 13, you might want to jot it down. Matthew 13, 55 to 57. The people in Nazareth say this, Jesus' hometown. They go, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters? Aren't they all with us? So where does he get all these things? And they were offended by him, by Jesus. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And are you ready for this? In his household. You see, the family did not believe while Jesus' ministry was occurring. 
In John chapter 7, verse 5, look it up. It says specifically, not even the, his brothers believed in him. It says that. In 1 Corinthians 15, the great chapter where resurrection is there, we love that chapter, Paul notes that Jesus appeared to James after the resurrection. And boy, some great things started because of that. Belief, trust in the Lord Jesus. And Acts 1 shows us, if you'll read it, that as a result, all the brothers of Jesus became believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they later served in leadership roles in the church. Take a look at that. And yet, and yet, despite when this was written, this pedigree, this position, if you will, Jude does not emphasize his biological relationship. Instead, he emphasizes his spiritual relationship as you look at this. He calls himself what? A slave, doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. You see, I believe Jude is more interested in submission to Jesus and all that Jesus has done and said for us instead of emphasizing his relationship as in brother to Jesus. What about us? What about you? I think that's a good example for me to follow. More important should be than anything, even though I'm grieving uh, uh, one set of family that has left to go back overseas, another set from our family is leaving tomorrow, oh, I must emphasize, what an example, the spiritual relationship over the familial or even friendship relationship. You think about that. You think about that for a minute. We see this modeled for us right here. Well, that's who he is. He calls himself the slave of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see the Savior. I want you to notice the word order. Maybe you've not heard this before, but it's important. He says, to those who are called, loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. Now, that's interesting to note. In the Bible, when two names are listed in combination, the order is important. The first name is emphatic, and the second name is secondary, duh, or clarifying. And so we have Jesus... Christ. So we could define that this way, that word order this way. The one who humbled himself, but is now exalted and glorified as the Christ, the anointed one. Do you see that? Jesus Christ. Jude emphasizes Jesus' humanity. He says Jesus first, yet he acknowledges with Christ that his older brother is the Christ, the Savior. It's a clarifying name. So we have the slave, and then we have the Savior, and then now we see in the text it says, to those. Well, what, who, who are those? To the saints. Now, they're not New Orleans saints, okay? You know, I'm sorry, Drew Brees has retired. You're not going to the Super Bowl this year. Sorry, Saints fans. We're not talking about that, are we? What are we talking about then? It says to those. Well, we get it right there. Look, it says to those who are called, loved by God, and kept by Jesus Christ. Probably scholars would tell us a specific church or perhaps even a group of churches. But nevertheless, let's look at what that means. First of all, to those people, the saints, they're called. What does called mean? It means selected by God. Aren't you glad God called you? Please don't think for a moment that you, in your infinite goodness, said, I'm going to step up and do all these great things for God, and he's going to accept me and take me in. No, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. God's the one who does it. God's the one who calls. Are you praying that God would call your friends and your family and your work associates and your neighbors? Are you, are you praying, God, call them to yourself. Draw them, Scripture says, to yourself. God, let work through me. Let me be part of that. So they're called. They're selected by God. Now, we know there's two things to the call. First of all, it's a universal call. Acts 17.30. God, here's Acts 17.30. God now commands all people everywhere to repent. It's for all. For God so loved one country in the world? No. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, and not perish, but what? Have eternal life. 
So it's universal. Paul writes in Philippians 3.14, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 1.9, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus. Notice the word order. Before time began. Wow. And this universal call is something else. And now we've just read these verses to show it's also an individual call. Did you catch that? It's universal and it's individual. And finally, the last thing I would say about being called, the call that we see here, is that the call is always in Jesus Christ. Are you catching that? It's not a call to a certain church. It's not a call to a certain ism. It's not a call to an author that resonates with us. The call is always in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you know it. Therefore, if anyone is what? In Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So let's remember that. The call is out there for everyone. And it takes place individually as we respond by faith. And it's always centered in Jesus Christ. There's a little truth that we need to share with the world, isn't there? All roads don't lead to Jesus. There's a narrow way that leads to Jesus. Secondly, the saints are uh, identified as being loved. Loved by God the Father. Have you thanked your Father, God the Father, this week for his love? Have you done that? I would encourage you to do that often. What does this show? It shows our place in the heart of God. We have a place. He loves us so much. We have a place in the heart of God, and we are set apart to be like him. So those folks, the saints who he's writing to, are called, they're loved by God the Father, but third, they're kept by Jesus Christ. That's an interesting word. It means the continual watchful care the continual watchful care that we need until eternity comes. And boy, don't we need it every day? Don't we need it every hour? We do. I'm so thankful that I'm kept by Jesus Christ because if I was just a wind-up toy, a robot, and he said, okay, you're Christian, go, uh, I'd mess everything up, wouldn't you? He keeps us, though. He's continually watching over us. The picture of this word here is like a guard would do in a prison. I know that sounds kind of negative, but, but picture that. That powerful, that much authority, it's like he's the guard watching over me, a prisoner to sin that's been set free. Wow. So Jude addressed specific circumstances to assist the church in response to intruders. We're getting ready to look at that. Basically, we could say he reminded them of who they were. It's important sometimes, church, and take note. Be encouraged to be reminded who you are. You're called, you're loved, and you're kept. I should be seeing some more smiles. Some of you are just, well, at least you're awake. That's good. All right. Yeah. That just comforts me so much, to be reminded who we are, just like these readers were reminded and let me ask you a tough question this morning. When is the last time you've reminded yourself that you're called, loved, and kept? It's okay to do that. When you're facing something difficult, when your heart is sad, when you're grieving, think about our world right now and some things that have happened this week. Just grie- Are you grieving over it like I am? It is good to be reminded that he's called us. He loves us and he's kept us. And just for an example, for those in Afghanistan right now, this evening over there, Christians, they're called, they're loved, and they're kept. Amen? Let's remember that. Well, let's move on to the second thing. In verse 2, I call this things needed in the battle for truth. Remember, contend can be fight, gives us a picture of a battle. Just to note, this little greeting here is slightly different than the other New Testament letters. And we find right away in verse 2, three things were needed. Mercy, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Not added to you, but multiplied to you. 
These were needed with the church because the church, as we will find out, they're embattled. They're in a battle with apostasy, with false teaching, with the opposite of truth. And so we have mercy, peace, and love. So if you were an artist, I'm not, you would draw a stick figure in your sermon notes. And mercy, you would draw the stick figure and you would point an upward arrow. Mercy is the upward look. What does that mean? It means it's God who gives mercy to us, right? And then maybe you'll do a dashed arrow to the side. Then we give mercy to others. But it is God who does that. So it says, may that be multiplied in your life. Secondly, it's peace. Peace, I would draw the guy and I'd draw an arrow right inside. Because peace is the inward look. It's the amazing Christian attribute that we are giving given and it's inside of us we just studied through the spirit love joy peace and then we come to love and I, I like love with arrows pointing out it's the outward look here's the thing about love are you ready mercy peace hopefully they see that but love they see love they see love is seen by all as it is used by us did you catch that if it's not used by us, it's not seen by all. As we use it, it's multiplied to us. People experience that and they see that. Just like these readers, I would submit to you today, we can never have too much mercy, peace, and love. Would you agree with that? Wow. And let's be reminded that only God can produce these things in the lives of his people. And he multiplies. It's not an addition, it's a multiplication. So let me ask you this morning, how are you doing on the mercy scale? How are you doing on the mercy scale? How are you doing on the peace scale? How are you doing on the love scale? Is it being multiplied within you? And so these are three things that need, as we get ready to contend, we need these things in our life. So let's move on to verse 3. Now we're going to really dig deep here in 3 and 4. Uh, verse 3 gives us the proposal. And it gives us the problem. Here's the proposal. Look at verse 3. Jude clearly loves the recipients of his letter. What does he call them? Dear friends. Beloved ones. He, he, and it's something very interesting to note. Did you catch it when we read verse 3? He's intending to write to them about our common salvation. Woo, that sounds great, doesn't it? Yay, cheerleader. Great. But what happens? He was going to take them back to Calvary, just our common salvation. It's a good thing. But the Holy Spirit intervened here, and he writes about something differently. Now, we're going to go on just a little, little tangent here. I want you to think about something. Let me share with you something. You may want to jot these things down. The Holy Spirit is sovereign over the inspiration, the preservation, and the collection of the Bible. This is very important for us to note as we think about truth and how truth matters. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, you know uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, right? And it does all these kind of things. So inspiration, yes, the Bible, the scripture is inspired by God. Yes, it is also inspiring to read. The authors were inspired by God, but there's so much more than that. We sell it short sometimes just by saying that. What we need to realize, it's, it's, it's God's creative breath, which means life, Old Testament and New Testament. God's creative breath, his life, his very life has breathed out the word of God. Do you understand that? That's what we call having a high view of a scripture. That's what sets certain churches apart from other churches. We believe it. We believe that it is inspired by God, that his very life is in the word, and it's there for us, inspiration. Secondly, preservation, another topic of truth. What does that mean? It's the concept that God is able and that God is determined to keep for us his word just as he intends it to be. So as you argue over a translation, or whether it should be English, Korean, Greek, Hebrew, Russian, whatever, be careful because God, preservation, God has it just as he intends it to be. And let me remind you that the Bible is the best-selling book on the planet. Are you aware of that? It still is. 
In spite of numerous efforts to ban it, numerous efforts to burn it and to blaspheme it, the Word of God still stands above everything else. Amen? Well, is that because we're great Bible translators? Or even we love the Gideons, or even the Gideons? It goes way beyond that. It's called preservation. God is God, and he is able to preserve it for us. And this Bible that I'm using may be different than your Bible, but he has it as it should be for me. If I will just read it, study it, and then the hard part, obey it. Amen? That's preservation. And the third one is collection. Here's another truth here. So the Holy Spirit is sovereign over the inspiration of it, the preservation of it, and the collection. And maybe you didn't know this, some of you are numbers people. The Bible is written by approximately 40 men of diverse backgrounds. Are you ready for this? Over the course of around 1,500 years, in more than one language, and there's 66 books that make up the Old Testament and the New Testament canons. And guess what? God has collected it just as he wants it to be. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? You realize it's not totally chronological, right? Is that okay? God, I don't know why Jude is right here. God knows. That's how it should be, collection. You think about that for a minute. Unbelievable when we think about this proposal. So I'd ask you today, have you spent any time in the Word of God lately? Have you? God himself has inspired it. It's his words. It's his life. It's his love letter to us. He's preserved it to be just as it is. And a miracle of miracles. There's no other document or book like this that has been over this many years and authors put together. Unbelievable. So let me go a step further because I saw a lot of you going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you memorized any of it this year? Oops. Think about it. Went to the Franklin Graham uh, counselor training last week before I got sick. And uh, it was amazing. And it was the most beautiful sound to hear people practicing steps with peace to God, practicing sharing with others. But I was sitting there, and then we got to the point, well, you'll have to memorize some verses. And I heard a little oh, in the crowd. <laughs> some people were panicking. And then they popped them up there. And I could hear another audible one because a lot of the people there knew those five verses. It's amazing. And don't get hung up on if you get every word perfect. Listen, I've memorized John 3.16 in about three different versions. I can't even quote it without mixing and matching them. It's okay. Get the gist of what God's word says, and we can share that with others. So we see God knew that these people and us today didn't need another gospel. This is not a gospel, but this is a little book, a postcard, if you will, to sound the alarm, to awake the church to a particular problem. And here's the problem. Look at verse 3. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write and exhort you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. Every one of these little phrases in this verse is important. You cannot leave any phrase out or we will miss what is God is sharing with us here. So let's look at the problem. The problem was a serious circumstance that had arisen in the church. It was, a, if you will, a fresh outbreak of apostasy, of false teaching, of something that is not the truth. And Jude, right here in his own words, found it necessary. He said, I need to, what, exhort you. Very strong word. You see, they didn't need a long gospel. They didn't need a prophecy like Jeremiah. They needed something concise and pithy and to the point, a brief letter to the point so that they could contend for the faith. Do you have that word there? I hope you have that word 
in your copy of Scripture. It's the, this is a unique word. It's the only time this word, contend, in the, the Greek word, is the only time it's used in the New Testament. Think about it. Well, in all of Scripture. What does it mean? Contend means this. Are you ready? To strive earnestly. Get that picture in your mind. To struggle. To fight for. And then here's a qualifier. It is an intense effort. You see why I started with Joe Lewis and the picture of that? I'm not advocating boxing. I'm just saying contending is an intense effort. There's a lot of striving. There's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of fight. There's a lot of preparation. The gold medalist that just happened recently didn't just walk in off the street and say, hey, I think I'll try this. They prepared and they prepared and prepared for it. So he finds it necessary to exhort us to contend There's a battle. It's on. Listen to the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. These are Jesus' words. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me, are you ready? Scatters. Hmm. What are we to contend for? For the faith. We know that word. We talk about that word all through Scripture. In Galatians, we were talking about it all the time. Faith. Belief. Pistis. Over and over. These words. And we're to contend for the faith. So what is faith? Faith, what are we contending for? It's truth that is to be believed in. And now we get to these phrases I don't want you to miss. It says, it's contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints. We must see this. As we battle truth, and as you go out even today, maybe in this week, and you get someone with a different viewpoint, look at the word delivered. What does that tell us? When we're talking about God's truth, it tells us it's already been delivered. You're like, well, duh. Do you see it, though? What's the implication? It's been delivered. We must believe it. We must not tamper with it. I shudder when I see a new book that comes out that has this brand new slant on something that throughout all orthodoxy, throughout the centuries of the church, it's never been mentioned, and all of a sudden this guy who's over in Singapore or this guy who's down in Alabama, you notice how I picked the extremes, okay? Yeah, has come up with this idea. No, it has been delivered. We believe it. We don't tamper with it. It is not gradually being given. This is important, church. Because of some of your friends who would say they're born-again Christians might believe this falsehood. It's not gradually being given. It's already been completed and given to us, the saints. Contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints. Well, how can you say that, Lamar? Because the last phrase says, once for all. Do you see that? That's not my words. That's God's word. We cannot add another book, another story, another tradition, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. More supplements. Listen, run from that. When someone tries to add, run from that. We should line everything up with Scripture. Do you remember the beginning of Galatians when we studied studied that? No one is to add or take away. I was in the airport Thursday night waiting to pick up kiddos coming back from Phoenix and they were delayed. It was very late at night, getting close to midnight. And I noticed two gentlemen wearing a certain colored shirt talking with a lady. And of course, being who I am, pastor, I started going like this. It's very awkward. His airport, I had my mask on, I was over there, because I wanted to hear what garbage these two young men were sharing with this lady. And as it got closer to her, guess what? They weren't giving it to her. She was contending for the faith. And she was prepared. What they were saying, she was countering with the word of God. And it was only a few minutes, and here came the people, and all of a sudden, they were gone. <laughs> They were gone because she contended. And I was just, because I was going to, you know, you know what I was going to do. I was going to get in the conversation. I was going to rescue her from these two gentlemen who weren't <laughs> teaching the truth. I felt like going over and saying, man, 
Do you have a church home? Come to Hoffmantown. We could use you. Just, just a little idea. Just a little picture of that. Well, let's finish with verse 4 and then we'll be done. Again, dig deep, important thing to look at. It says this, For certain men who were also designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth, they are ungodly, turning the grace, grace, guys, turning the grace of our God into promiscuity and denying our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude detected men. What does that mean? It means certain, specific, identifiable intruders who came in. They were identifiable if you ask, God will help you do that. You will have the discernment to identify someone who is sharing a falsehood. You don't have to go, oh, I'm just not sure. Boy, he's eloquent. No. God will help you to understand that. And it says they came in by stealth. Do you see that? What does that mean? It means they, to slip in secretly, generally. And specifically, this word means this, to get in by the side. Wow. They did not come in through the front door showing their real beliefs, showing their true lifestyle, promiscuity, but instead they came in through the side door. The picture is like a thief would do. But yet they came in, guys. They came in. They came in. And they used the right words, but their words meant something else. And they believed differently, and you could tell because of what they did. Action words, promiscuity, denying. They were hiding their true character and motives when they slipped in. But boy, there it was. Let me just ask you this morning. What are your real beliefs, church? What are your real beliefs? And what is your true lifestyle? Not here at church. Look at this. I always put on a nice shirt. I'd rather wear a Denver Broncos t-shirt, but some of y'all would leave. I understand. Troy. <clears throat> anyway. Uh, he likes Kansas City. Oh. Okay, no. They slipped in. They were able to slip in. And so we must say, what's my true lifestyle? Is it true out there or is it just true right here? Am I an active participant of my Sunday school class, my life group? And, but then when I leave, whether it's from a Sunday, a Tuesday, a Wednesday or whatever, is it still true what is my character? I would ask you, church, what's your motive? This is a hard one for preachers, for shepherds. I constantly must ask God to give me the right motives. I don't want to put another mark on the wall. Oh, got that one. Oh, contended with that one. Oh, shut that guy down and what he believed. Oh, we had another baptism. What is our motives? Our motives are what? The eternal, life-changing born-again experience when God saves a person. Amen? And then what God does, the salvation continues in a way, doesn't it? We call it sanctification throughout life. And we get to live the abundant life here on earth and eternal life someday with God. So watch your motives. And I would ask you one other thing. Are you a side-door Christian or a front-door Christian? Well, quickly, and we're done. Four things about these false teachers. Look at the verse there. Number one, God knew. God knew what they were doing. How? Because they were designated. Now, we can talk about that a lot. Don't have time to do that now. But God knew. They were designated for this beforehand. It's the idea of being written up beforehand. Have you ever been written up? I'll never forget years ago, traveling into Cuba from the north. Cuba, the city, not, not the country, all right? I didn't say Cuba. I said Cuba, Okay. And about 10 miles out, I got pulled over with my entire family in the car, plus my eldest son's future wife. And the dear state policeman wrote me a ticket. I got written up. I became designated at that point. Are you aware of what that means? So then we pulled into Cuba, and I was steaming still. We stopped at the McDonald's, went to the bathroom, and I started to tear out of Cuba. And before I could get out of Cuba, guess what happened? The great policeman, I don't know if there's more than one, of Cuba pulled me over. And I got another ticket. <laughs> Folks, what are you looking? Why? Who said ooh? <laughs> I'm a sinner just like you, whoever said ooh. 
Man, I was doubly designated in the span of a few minutes. But what I want you to see about this is this is not a story, a made-up, well, this kind of person might do this. No, these are identified, specific God knows. He's indicted them already, just like I got indicted with tickets. Judgment is already set, just like that happened. Later on, I got another ticket in Cuba. They said I rolled through a stop sign. I I fought that one and won it. Needless to say, there's a big bush that's no longer in Cuba. (laughs) Because I won, and the judge went and removed the bush. That's a whole other story. We got Sunday school to go to today, don't we? Sorry, teachers. You get the idea, though. We'll study it in our later sermons here, messages, but I want you to see the judgment was set. They're already indicted. Secondly, we see that they're ungodly. What does that mean? It doesn't mean non-religious. What it means is they, ungodly, they deliberately did things that God had forbidden. They lived as if God doesn't matter or exist. They were ungodly. So I'd ask you, what's your private life like? When you're on the computer, no one's around, what's it like? They made it in, so they were some kind of religious. Are you religious? Or do you have that vital, personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Number three, they were unholy. Well, Lamar, how can you say that? Look, they perverted God's grace, exhibit A. And then they used it, exhibit B, as a license for sin. Did you catch that? This is a stark contrast to Romans 6, 1 and 2. The sin issue should be put to rest if we look uh, a couple places in Romans 6, but look at Romans 6, 1 and 2. It says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Have you ever heard that? I've heard someone say, I had a guy tell me. said, oh, no, I'm I'm saved, I'm forgiven. I'm I'm not going to deal with that sin. Look what it says. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And here's the scripture. By no means, exclamation point. How can we who died to sin still live in it? God exhorts us. The word that's used here, in their case, these false teachers is promiscuity. And we often think of promiscuity as just talking about something that is a sexual sin, like an affair or something like that. But promiscuity means so much more than that. Here's what promiscuity means. It means excess. It means lack of moderation. It means absent of, absence excuse me, of restraint. You see, it's more than just having an affair Or premarital sex. It's more than that. It has to do with the way we dress, the fads we follow, the hobbies that get too obsessive. You see where I'm going with this? The words we say. I would ask, how are you doing? Are you holy or are you unholy? And then the last one, they were unruly. What what does that mean? They denied you see the word? They denied the only, the only, not one, but the only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They would not conform to the authority of the living God. Can I just say this is a big, big problem in the modern church today? A big problem. So what, Lamar? How does this relate to my life? Two things. Hear me out. Correct doctrine and true faith have a vital relationship. Some of you may want to avoid studying doctrine. You think it's dry and boring. Okay, I'll give you that. Part of it may be dry and boring, but it is vital. If we don't have doctrine, then we have these tangents. Remember when we said a while back? God is love, but love is not God. See, some people have taken that love thing all the way over, so no matter what it is, it's got to be God. No. Doctrine and true faith. And secondly, and this is a direct translation from the Moran paraphrase of the Bible. 
false teachers are always a mess. They're always a mess. And we are to run from them. Titus 1.16 says this about false teachers. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And then we get a clarifying statement. They are detestable, disobedient, and disqualified for any good work. So at the bottom of your uh, sermon notes there, you should have seven questions to ask about a religious group or teacher. You do your own study, but I'm just going to read them real quick. And as I read each one, would you just think about it? And as you engage in the marketplace, as you contend for the faith, for truth, would you just think about this? Here's question number one. Whoever this person is or this group, does it stress man-made rules rather than God's grace? Boom. Does it foster a critical spirit toward others? That's one reason I don't like politics. It's another subject. Or does it exercise discipline discreetly and lovingly? Number three, does it stress formulas or secret knowledge? You know about that, Gnosticism? Secret knowledge or special visions instead of the Word of God? Does it elevate self-righteousness, honoring those who keep the rules rather than elevating Christ? That would be the legalism question, wouldn't it? Does it neglect Christ's universal church claiming to be an elite group. Listen, there are a few denominations in this United States of America that say they are the group. As soon as they say that, the only group. As soon as they say that, they do not qualify for true faith. Does it teach humility, humiliation, humiliation of the body as a means to spiritual growth rather than focusing on the growth of the whole person? This one is big. Some of our people right here at Hoffmantown are dealing with this with their adult children right now. Look at it. Does it disregard the family rather than holding it in high regard as the Bible does? Know that your kid or grandkid, if they have nothing to do with that and they've gone off over here into this little group, and this little group says, you can have nothing to do with your family. Everything they taught you was wrong, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a real problem there. Church, contend for the faith. Do it with grace and mercy and love. Be prepared. Have a plan of attack. Not to win the fight, not to be proven right, but for the soul of mankind, for the souls of our neighbors, the people we care about, even the stranger that walks by us, that is deceived or ignorant. May we do this. And God, may you help us as we study this in the coming weeks. Let's pray. Lord, would you just show us right now where we are? Would you exhort us? Would you give us an attack plan to contend for the faith? Would you just impress our hearts, Lord, right now that you have delivered truth to us once for all? It's there. God, would you help us to study, but more than that, to obey? God, would you hide your words in our hearts. God, would you give us discernment, not to argue, but to see things that come in by stealth that are false. God, would you help us to understand Scripture? And as we read Scripture, would you bring more Scripture to our mind? Would you see how you have put it all together for us? And God, would you help us never to deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, as your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, I'm going to do something different in this response time. Just get alone with the Lord right now. Nobody moving around.
If God has assured you in your life that you are a child of the King, that you are a born-again Christian, that He will work through you to contend for faith, I just want to be encouraged this morning. If you know that you know that you're a born-again believer, would you lift your hand? Just leave it up. I want to see it. This is just a blessing to me. Pastor, I know that God has saved me and He is working in my life and He will equip me. Just raise it right there. Let me see it. Leave it up. Amen. You may put it down. Now remain quiet just before the Lord. If you're not sure, I want to pray for you. If you're not sure that you're a born-again Christian, and, and by the way, if you don't understand the word born again, that may be a good clue. If you're not sure and you say, Pastor, would you pray for me? Just lift your hand up. You can't contend for the faith. You can't contend for truth if you're not born again. Is there anyone here this morning? Just, just lift your hand up quickly and I might pray for you. And God, I do pray for those who are not sure that you would share the gospel with them. The truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That you would burn in their heart that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. God, would, would you show them the words of the Bible that say that we've all sinned and we've missed the mark, that we have a great problem because our sin separates us from you. And God, that you had a rescue plan. You sent Jesus. Even though we were sinners, you sent Jesus and he died for us. And that you will, that people would be saved, men and women and boys and girls. And that because of your great, even, the, even faith, you give it to us so we can respond and repent. And we can say today, God, forgive me. I turn to you, all of me. And I give me to you. Please save me. And please be my Lord. Be the boss of my life. Know that if you pray that prayer this morning, or perhaps when you're watching this video, know that God has come in. He is ready and willing to save you, and he will save you. So be sincere and commit that to him. And know that he desires a relationship with you. He created you to be in relationship with him. In fact, Jesus has not come back yet because you and others need to be saved, need to be born again. So God, I pray that, 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 that whoever would pray that prayer would be sincere and you would come in and just break through into their life, God. I pray for those who are pondering right now that you would work in their lives, that you would continue to draw them, that we might have conversation with them. Thank you, God, for saving me. I did not deserve it, but yet you showered your grace and love on me. Help me to do that with others as I share truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.